The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 22, The Narrative, Part 2. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm your host, John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. This week, we continue our discussion about the true narrative of the Watergate scandal. Recall that at the end of the last episode, The Narrative Part 1, we discussed the peculiarities of the timing of the Watergate burglary and the order of Magruder to go in as it related to Operation Mudhen. We talked about Operation Mudhen in our episode about Jack Anderson. Recall that it was an intensive four-month CIA operation in which the CIA was admittedly attempting to silence Anderson on something. Now, the cover story of the CIA was that it was trying to make sure that Anderson did not reveal any state secrets about Russia. And as we mentioned earlier, that made no sense in the context of Anderson, because the source that had been giving him confidential materials from Henry Kissinger's burn bag had now been caught and transferred away from Washington, D.C., a young yeoman, Theodore Radford. So that danger had passed that Anderson would have any availability of confidential national security information from this source. We also talked in this episode that the likely target of Operation Mudhen was to intimidate Anderson to the point of threatening his life if he revealed what he had learned from William Haddad of Manhattan and also the spook community in Manhattan about the planned break-in of the DNC. That long-running silent battle did not end until mid-April 1972, when, we infer, Anderson finally agreed to stand mute. With this introduction, let's continue Part 2, The Narrative. Operation Mudhand greatly affects our narrative. First, it explains why the first burglary was delayed into Memorial Day weekend, since there was apparently no peace with Anderson until mid-April. Secondly, it is consistent with our inferences about the motives of the CIA to kill anyone who might blow the cover off Watergate, which was to be an important legitimating operation with its abundance of proof of White House approval. Watergate, in short, was a get-out-of-jail-free card should any of the CIA's widespread domestic operations be uncovered in the future. Need for later proof of White House approval of CIA operations should any of this be discovered in the future, would explain why pictures were taken of the idiotically grinning Liddy in a clearly marked parking space of Dr. Fielding. This need explains why the CIA would keep this photo secure in its records, while, you may note, the picture was never determined to be for the benefit of the White House, at least as to any evidence we have seen. The White House obviously did not care about keeping this photo as a memento of the break-in, and indeed, the motives of White House personnel would be to destroy such a photo. Why would the CIA care to keep a memento of a purely White House operation? The answer is it would not, for the same reason that the White House would wish to destroy such a picture, because it proved White House guilt, is the same logical reasoning that would motivate the CIA to keep it. That is, that picture 
is evidence of innocence, that is to say, White House approval for a domestic operation. The need for such future documentation is shown as well by Hunt's notebook, which recorded authorizations and approvals, and also that of Martinez, the latter of which went strangely missing, the former destroyed by Dean for obvious reasons since it implicated Dean as one of the approvers. The need for CIA documentation is also shown by the letter McCord presented to Stevens, and as well the traceable White House money which went to pay Stevens for the satellite uplinking bugs. All of this is future get-out-of-jail-free cards for the CIA. That this was a CIA legitimating operation explains also why McCourt had to remain on the burglary team, in spite of not even being single-blind, much less double-blind as would be normally required by operational protocol. McCord had to carry out the devious plan of tapping Oliver, nowhere in Liddy's understanding of the operation, although to be sure one which Dean also surely knew of. McCord needed to be on the team because it was he who lied to Liddy about buying and placing a $30,000 O'Brien room bug while never going near that office during the first burglary. Part of that $30,000, of course, was used to buy the satellite uplinking bugs from Stevens, which were on order at the time of the arrest. Although the burglars did not actually penetrate O'Brien's office during the first burglary, the need to show falsely penetration of O'Brien's office is shown by the picture of gloved hands holding down stationary, showing the director of the DNC on the letterhead, a false proof of entry of O'Brien's office. Of course, we know of the radically different defense approaches as between agency diehard McCord and family man Hunt regarding outing the Watergate burglaries as CIA operations. Once the CIA knew it had little explaining to do with the trial testimony of Hunt and Prosecutor Earl Silbert's Mullen-centric trial theme, both quieted by Hunt's plea and by Baslin's harsh ruling, then the CIA was completely free to unleash on the White House. The public, whetted by the Post, was hungry for it, and McCord did not disappoint with his dramatic letter to Judge Sirica in late March 1973, when the coast was relatively clear for the CIA, having avoided both Hunt's CIA defense and Silbert's Mullen-centered prosecution theme. All that possibly stood in the way for the CIA at this point would have been an unwrapping by either Stevens or Russell. Hunt now was forced to stay in the CIA corral. In October of 1972, Mark Felt went to the garage not to put the screws to Nixon, but simply to chin up public pressure to keep open his investigation and allow use of the grand jury to see if Segretti's approval by the Oval Office could be tied to Oval Office approval of the burglaries. The White House could not be so tied, but the investigative hypothesis was a sound one. Unfortunately for the truth, the Post would not let it go even when it did not seem to pan out. It was simply too attractive a theme by which to nail the Oval Office. 
One completely unintended dividend for the Post and all anti-Nixonites was that this article strengthened Pat Gray's hand in the eyes of the Oval Office, as he now, ironically, became the target of the media after Deep Throat's sensational October 10, 1972 collaboration with Woodward, which was interpreted to accuse the FBI of not investigating fully under pressure from the White House. The White House thought it was rewarding Gray, but soon came to regret the nomination. The White House could have kept Gray on as acting director for Infinity. It was a huge mistake to allow Gray to be fed to the lions in that Senate chamber. But with Gray folding under grilling, Dean was now for the first time spotlighted when Gray volunteered that he had provided FBI reports to Dean. Then in a recorded call, he reminded Ehrlichman of the documents Ehrlichman via Dean had told him, Gray, to destroy. So now both Dean and Ehrlichman were made vulnerable, but Dean especially so. Now that Gray had publicized him, Dean had to have Nixon authorize executive and or attorney-client privilege protection to keep him from testifying. Or, if not, Dean had to abandon ship. After all, he could not admit to Gray's allegations, nor could he admit sponsoring Liddy. If he denied sponsoring Liddy, that could later come back to bite him as a perjury conviction. And what if Hunt, now with no Fifth Amendment privilege, thanks to Dean's lack of depth in arguing a plea deal for him, now turned on him? Or what if Magruder did, as the circle tightened? Dean had no choice but to turn state's evidence. So now let us put ourselves in the intriguing position of John Dean immediately after the arrest. Once we understand Dean, we understand half of the deceit of Watergate, the other half being that of the CIA. This analysis, of course, excludes the post-journalism which aided that deceit. As we posit here, it appears that both Watergate burglaries had Dean's okay. In fact, Dean talked Liddy into working for the CRP precisely so he could use the unguided missile and campaign cash for his, quote, blind ambition, unquote, of developing an oppo intelligence portfolio. This was Dean's way up in the world. What is stunning is that very few people seem to have understood what blind ambition really meant in the context of Dean and Watergate. Soon after the arrest, Dean learned that the stand-up soldier Liddy would never break. So he could keep his own involvement quiet if he kept Magruder and Hunt quiet. But Dean was not an experienced criminal defense lawyer and missed a golden opportunity to have Liddy take the fall, perhaps through Liddy's attorney. After my plans were rejected, Liddy could have said, I went out on my own as a rogue agent because I felt the DNC needed to be investigated for national security purposes. All would have had some form of a life raft and this scandal likely would have died a warning. Instead, Dean sucked his clients into a silly cover-up, mainly to keep the spotlight off of him. But he recommended silly, useless, unnecessary shenanigans, which ultimately destroyed a presidency, but has had the perverse result of allowing Dean to be gainfully employed for these last 47 years. There was absolutely no need or value in the Mexican money trail obstruction, that is, using the CIA to falsely tell the FBI to lay off for fear of interfering with the CIA operation. The CIA could easily prove the burglary money came from the CRP, even without any Mexican money trail investigation, so obstructing it meant nothing. Yet this one cover-up, more than any other, caught on tape, sunk Nixon, and forced him to resign. What about Dean's push to deliver 
quote, hush money, unquote. Again, it was totally unnecessary. Simply admitting this was an operation by rogue CRP agents, albeit silly, gave the CRP the legal obligation to provide indemnity, that is, legal fees and expenses, for the burglars. There was no need to have Tony Ulasiewicz posing as Mr. Rivers to covertly deposit cash in lockers. But that's what happened with abundant proof of consciousness of guilt. Everyday corporate defendants are provided legal expenses by the corporation, even when the officials are charged with a crime. It is no big deal. But Dean was not sophisticated enough to understand this part of the law, nor was anyone else in the Oval Office. Dean's dishonesty also had the effect of keeping Nixon to his belief that Mitchell or Colson had authorized the operation, which would have been much worse for the Oval Office than the truth, and a belief which allowed the Oval Office to authorize the hush money. In other words, if the Oval Office knew that Dean and Magruder were the true authors of this, ignoring for the moment the CIA, no one in the Oval Office would have bothered with hush money to save these two lieutenants. They would have walked the plank. When Dean turned prosecution witness, he and Magruder needed to get their stories straight. Magruder's best ticket was to blame Mitchell. We note that the first leaks in the spring of 1973 from Magruder's camp blamed Dean for authorizing the burglaries, but this claim was quickly retracted, likely with coordination between Magruder and Dean, and Magruder homed in on Mitchell. If Liddy had testified, Dean and Magruder would have looked much more like instigators than innocents. With Dean eventually turning on Nixon and Magruder on Mitchell, the Post and Congress had no motive to highlight the obvious holes in their stories. The lying of all these actors, combined with the partisan slant of Congress, was so effective in the public eye that Nixon was hit with a veritable tidal wave once the public hearings began. So, to recap, we may infer that the CIA lied abundantly, Dean lied, and Magruder lied. Nixon Haldeman and Ehrlichman, who themselves were not experienced defense lawyers, were all stupid to have relied on the inexperienced dean and not on an experienced lawyer. Liddy was a dupe, but a courageous, honorable one, whose silence allowed a cover-up of the true cover-up, the one voice that could have righted this ship, making this a very interesting and engaging three-ring circus of horrors and oddities, and not a one-ring circus, was the post. The Post, as we have shown, had plenty of information about the CIA and about Mullen. It is highly likely as well that it knew of Hunt's CIA defense, and it certainly knew of Silbert's blackmail theory of the prosecution. It knew that the overhearings were of naughty boys talking to naughty girls, but the sensational reporting of the Post did not tell us any of that. But are we correct in our inference that the Post got the story wrong intentionally? If it did, American history has been terribly defrauded, and society owes the post no quarter. In short, why is it that the American people have maintained for almost 50 years a gross misunderstanding of this important historical event? And if the revered post reporting was substantially wrong, intentionally or otherwise, what does it tell us about the reliability of our modern electronic global village media? We will speak to this issue, but for now, we take leave of the mysteries of Watergate. 
Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.